You're listening to the Tennis.com Podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everybody. Tennis.com Podcast once again. Ed McGrogan here. Peter Bodo, Richard Pagliaro, we've uh, come down to New York office today to discuss Rome. Uh, actually, in a way, uh, the players who didn't necessarily factor into this um, big, top-heavy Rome weekend and uh, one of those two, one of those main players, Novak Djokovic, world number one. Um, this is a a man who has had a year, I think, of success as well as great surprise. He's the Australian Open champion, and of course, he beats Nadal in Monte Carlo. And and when that happens, he's the only person to have done that in the past nine years, I believe. Uh, I th- I think we kind of maybe expected Djokovic to really take uh, take the clay season. Uh, and kind of run with it. What's happened since is he's lost to Dimitrov, uh, Burdich most recently at Rome, and, and that after having a, a set and a 5-2 lead. He's also had some other surprise losses in Masters events this year, Del Potro, Tommy Haas in Miami. Um, you know, about Djokovic as, as Roland Garros really approaches here, what are your thoughts, I guess, on him? This is a guy who always, always played for the big stage. Is there any concern after some of his more recent defeats, or are you you maybe chalk this up to kind of an inevitable letdown after you beat Roth at his event that he just owns in Monte Carlo. Well, Rich, it's not 2011, is it? <laughs> it's never going to – that's – yeah, that's never going to happen again. No, I think I, – I actually mean that semi-seriously, and I think Djokovic has settled into kind of a routine. He's going to pick up the Australian Open title every time he plays. I think in his own mind he's thinking that. And so it's all good. He can really target – I mean, I don't think he's chasing Federer Nadal in terms of their Masters 1000 titles, as, as many as he wants to win. So I think he's kind of playing it cool. I mean, I just, I, I don't sense that he's like desperate to go out there and kick butt and take names every every week. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think he's thinking French Open. You know, it's anything that happens before the French, as long as he's feeling good, as long as he's taking care of his body, I think he's going to be happy because that is what I think he's really focused on. Yeah, I mean, this year he, he obviously came to that mindset of, just like last year, the French was the only jewel that he doesn't have in the Grand Slam crown, and and um, I think your your 2011 point is a good one in that you know, that was the year, of course, Djokovic had hardly any blemishes at all, and, and any loss was front page news. It still is with with Djokovic, but it's obviously I think a little more of how he's come into his own and and become that number one and really has settled into that uh, pretty well over the last couple of years. Um, go ahead, Ruth. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, the Dimitrov loss, I don't think that was that bad of a loss, only because the, I mean, it really looked to me like he did aggravate the ankle injury from Boise. You know, he didn't, it, at the end of that match, he didn't look right. I think the Burdich loss was a little more surprising to me, even though Burdich is obviously higher ranked than, than uh, Dimitrov, only because those are the matches Djokovic usually closes you yeah, know, that's pretty emphatic. I mean, just that he let that slip. That's a little. It's a little disconcerting. Although, if that had been best of five, I can't say that. I think he would have won the match. That's really pretty think. shocking. I mean, for for a player of his caliber right. to to lose from a set and five two up, especially uh, against a guy is, like Burdich. I mean, he's a top ten player, but he's not exactly Bjorn Borg when it comes to you know hanging in there. Sometimes I mean, you get up on him, he doesn't always come back. Yeah, and you know, Djokovic. Uh, you know, this, this. I think this applies. Maybe this is one area where I think Federer and Nadal still, you know, historically speaking, have had maybe a little bit of an edge on him. Is is Djokovic? I still think does have that susceptibility to really, once things get down, I th- I think he does 
beat himself up still a little bit uh, to to a point of detriment, really. And I think that's perhaps what happened here. But, I mean... Um, and, you know, Burdick played great towards the end of that match, but also Djokovic did not. Yeah. I mean, Djokovic literally yeah. was like sort of, I, I think, standing back and kind of... You know, thinking, can this guy keep this up? You know, if he doesn't keep it up, I'm going to do it. But you can't do that. Yeah. You've got to be like an Adal and be proactive and say, you know, I've got to stop this guy from doing what he's doing by doing whatever he's doing better. So, I mean, that was a little bit surprising to me that Djokovic th- kind yeah. of withdrew into himself a little bit when it got real tight there at the end. I think you're exactly right because you compare the Nadal-Ferrer. Now, granted, Nadal's dominated Ferrer like Djokovic and Burdich, but when, Nadal, when Ferrer was up on him, Nadal dug in, started coming, stepping closer, hitting a little bit bigger, coming in a little. You know, he did. He was proactive, absolutely. And you didn't see that from Novak. But, you know, then again, it's two out of three. Maybe he felt like they just didn't, you know, have the time to turn around. It, it all does set up a pretty interesting landscape for the French on the men's side in that, um, it's Djokovic who actually has the last win over Rafa on clay, of course. Um, Rafa then takes the next two tournaments without playing Djokovic, of course. And, and I think, you know, I, I think of course we would pick Nadal as the favorite for the French. Is he, you know, is he the overwhelming favorite, or is he maybe perhaps just a slight favorite over Djokovic when you consider that that Monte Carlo match, which was a straight, wasn't a three setter, was a straight setter. Has has any sort of gap been closed in your mind? Well, let's let's remember Nadal would first have to get Byron Skolbis, was clearly the better player, for, at least in, in Ernest's own mind, as, as he told us after losing the semi. Is Ernest Skolbis <laughs> favorite Nadal. for the French Open? But no, in all seriousness, Djokovic. You know, the funny thing with Djokovic is I think, you know, we're getting to the point where I think in a way, you know, winning – and going into a tournament on a roll and stuff is not as important as it once was. I, I just don't – I think Djokovic – I think these guys just targeted big events so much. There's so much to gain and lose from them and doing well in the big events that as much as – as well as they do in the smaller – I mean, and by smaller, I mean everything sub-Grand Slam – you know, I don't think they sweat it. I, th- I think it's. A, I don't think Djokovic is going to go into the French Open any less confident against Nadal, you know, than he would, you know, you know, any other time with this. Because I think you know, there's a kind of a parity there now, and Djokovic knows knows what his job. And the same goes for Nadal. I think, although Nadal just keeps winning, so I I just don't see that. You know, oh my, you know. Djokovic is sitting there thinking, gee, what's wrong with me? I think it's just yeah. a little bit like, well, you know, I had a tough time. I let it get go against Berdick. Dimitrov played hot. Here we go. Perhaps you, know, you could really say the same thing about Federer along those same lines. Does that mean for as much as people want to put – really want to kind of uh, put Federer to pasture a little bit, I mean – he has he does not lose early at Grand Slams and and he's he's slipped up many times at Masters events and and you know contrary to that he made the Rome final just yesterday so it's that's right yeah. yeah that's a good point yeah, um, yeah it, it's what about you Rich about this Djokovic Nadal thing um, the gap that has perhaps closed perhaps has widened over the past few weeks or do you kind of really kind of wash it all and just you know let the chips fall. You know, for me, it's interesting because I feel like if if they met head-to-head, I would give Djokovic a slight edge even on clay, even though he's never won the French, even though there's the pressure trying to complete the career Grand Slam. For me, the difficulty for Novak is the collateral damage, like navigating. I think Rafa can navigate through the field 
maybe with less stress than Novak can, you know, coming up. I mean, you look at the Sangha match last year, he could have lost that match. I mean, yeah, I think if, great point. if he yep. goes through those kind of one or two of those matches, you know, it could drain, you know, and he, he's had the ankle problem. That could drain him before he gets to Rafa, if he gets to Rafa. But I think if right. they, if he got to him and he was, you know, feeling fine, phys- I, would, I would honestly give him a slight edge. I think he feels... Very comfortable. Not very comfortable. I think he feels comfortable in that match. Yeah, and Nadal, I mean, specifically at the French, of course, Nadal just does not – he doesn't even play extended matches. I mean, he had the one against – obviously the loss to Sterling. He had the one five-setter against Isner. But other than that, you're going to be hard-pressed to even find four-set matches that Nadal plays in Paris. And and that, that, uh, you know, as that two-week stretch comes, uh, that's one thing to consider if those two do happen. to And it reinforces when you watch how Roger was just powerless almost off the backhand against Nadal. And you hit, when he goes to Djokovic's backhand, Djokovic has the best backhand at 10, I think, the best two-hander. And he, I mean, he can drive it down the line. He can do a lot off that shot. And I think he's... Uh, maybe not secure, but he's stable with that pattern. You know, him coming to him, my backhand, he's okay with that. I don't think it scares him. I think he's so comfortable playing Nadal at this point. I, he just goes out there. It's just another match for the guy, yeah. I think. You know, there's, yeah. there's no intimidation factor whatsoever, which is astonishing when you look at Nadal's record. I mean, you ought to be intimidated. Going, but Djokovic isn't, I don't think. Federer, by contrast, is 180 degrees different, is, is I think, really you know, intimidated by Nadal's game. And, you know, for good reason, because because of the matchup. And I think it's the one thing, it's interesting, because it's the one time you're the world number one, but if you do face Rob, there wouldn't necessarily be the the immense pressure on him because you're going against the greatest French Open champion Absolutely. in history. It's all upside for him if, if that if he can get to that point, you know. The scary thing for, I think, the rest of, rest of players is that, you know, his backhand looked pretty good yesterday was Nadal's, a two-handed backhand, probably the least shot you would cite about him uh, really anywhere, and it looked pretty good against, I mean, everything looked good against Federer yesterday, but that in particular was something I... And I'll tell you, Federer looks so sharp against Simone, obviously two totally different opponents, but Federer played really well against Simone, so for Nadal to take him apart, I mean... Yep, it's uh, 08-2008 all over again with that match, definitely. Um, The other main player I want to discuss, we didn't see this weekend in Rome but certainly a factor of the French, is the defending champion, the world number two, and she has one loss on clay in 2013. But she seems farther from Serena Williams than perhaps ever before. And uh, and that's, that's not Serena Williams. That's Rafael Nadal and drag. <laughs> you know, he puts on a big wig, gets a little dark makeup, and he's you know he wants to do something different instead of his usual bolo forehands and all that stuff. So he goes out and he plays like Serena. There, there it is. That's not Serena Williams. That plays righty. He could go either way there, right? That's <laughs> all roundabout way of saying that Maria Sharapova is, has an interesting uh, predicament coming into the French, where um, really uh, you know a fantastic year. Uh, up to this point, since the Australian Open, she's lost to no one except for Serena Williams. And she with, she actually withdrew from Rome in the quarters with an illness. Um, I, I don't expect that to be anything long term, but it's it, it's this. You it's know, called fear. <laughs> it's this it's a, it's this big one problem that she has, not big four problem. It's this this one immovable obstacle for her, and it's now twelve consecutive losses after. She lost to Serena in Madrid here. I mean, I mean, does that really say it all about Sharapova's French Open fortunes? Is that she real really needs to? 
basically have an encore of last year where, uh, you know, Serena slipped up early and look who won the title with Sharapova there. It doesn't seem like there's much that she can change or do at this point against this matchup that is just as one-sided as it gets right now. She's got no plan B against Serena, and I think it, it, and mentally she feels like, I cannot beat her, even on clay. You look at Sharapova, what, six of her last seven titles are on clay. I mean, she's become that's a what, really... That's why we bring it up here. I mean, really, she's, really she's been good, fine on the surface. You know, yeah. clay player, and I mean, you put her against almost anyone else in the final, and I would pick her, but not against Serena, and also... Sharapova's never defended a major title, and I mean, sure, a lot of people haven't done that either, but I think that's another thing, just the, you know, Serena, I mean, Serena looks really, really primed right now. She looks really good, but I think, to your point, like, look, last year, Rosano, nobody saw that coming, and I think Serena, maybe the toughest thing is getting through that first week, you know, where she has looked tight sometimes in, in the French Open early, and I think she hasn't been to the Final Four there in, like, what, 10, 10 years, I think? It's been a while. But I think she's super, super pumped right now. The uh, That's one thing I think, the the one thing you can perhaps hope for in her, in Sharapova's camp is that all those stats I mentioned, all those you know, defending champion, of course, the pressure, oddly enough, is not going to be on her whatsoever right. to hold up this um, because the pressure is, is all on Serena, especially so, you know, she didn't win the Australian Open. Since then, she's won all the clay tournaments she's played um, and has a complete dominance over Sharapova, Azarenka, her her closest competition there. I mean, it would be, uh, I would think, it has to be a massive disappointment, massive shock if she didn't win this. Um, P, I'll let you, why don't you about this Sharapova, Serena, or between these two going into the French, is there anything more needs to be said in your mind? Well, I don't know. You know, Rich covered a lot of territory. I mean, I think one of the things that's, Stuns me really is that there's never been such a unbelievably obvious gap between, you know, a woman who dominates everybody and then is so utterly dominated by another woman. Yeah. It's just it's just yeah. astonishing, and you know it's terrible for Sharapova's legacy. People are always going to be this big asterisk that, you know, I mean she couldn't she couldn't get sets off Serena. Never mind, you know, win matches. So how good can she really be? And it's kind of interesting because in some ways there's almost some parallels a little bit there with Nadal and Federer. You know, in terms of, you know, once Nadal turned things around and really got on top of that rivalry uh, for good, you know, he's won 12 of the last 16, I guess, with, with Federer. I mean, I think it's just you just feel pity like, you know, it just it's just a horrible matchup for him. And you get the same thing now with Sharapova, although I think in her case the matchup is much more about some mental mental things. And, and, and the fall, you know, her, her serving woes and Serena's returning excellence. That's, to yeah. me, the real... The real difference between those two women right there is that, you know, Sharapova can get away with some of the bad serving she has in almost every other match with almost every other woman because they're not going to return like Serena. I mean, against Serena, it was ridiculous. Last time they played, Serena's firing back bullet. Sharapova couldn't move. You know, she hits her best serve, you know, and she hits a double fault. Then she hits her best serve, and Serena hits it back twice as fast at her feet. You know, what do you do about that? There's nothing you can't, you can't that's do about a, that. That's a really good point because people say to me, well, what if it's what if it's a damp fortnight and it's really soggy and it's a slow clay and it takes away Serena's serve? Serena's return is, is just as devastating a weapon when she's on as her serve. So even if she... You know, let's say that happens. She still ravages Sharapova's serve. I mean, just destroys her serve when she's on. They say that, uh, at least I feel this way, that observers of tennis, you can kind of sense when that double fault is coming. You can just, they hit the fault the first serve, and you can say, you just feel it coming. And that's what happens when 
Sharapova place. Yeah, I think and you see it. Serena even mentally just creep into the ba- inside for the second serve. It's just really intimidating. I think it, she sees her, she knows what's coming, and she, she just can't stop it. I know? don't think I've ever seen anybody exert, you know, like, look, there's clearly no love loss between right, these two. And yeah, I don't think I've yeah. ever seen anybody kind of assert that. That like that fundamentally mean you're not going to beat me. Yeah. I hate you. Oh, <laughs> it's rude. She's that whole rude. vibe yeah. out there. Yeah. And, and she, I think Sharapova kind of wilts before that. I think Sharapova kind of probably feels a little bit like, man, this girl's got my number. She's not going to let me slide. Hey, She's not going to play ball with me the way Vika does. You know, right. hey, you know, you know, whatever. So it's it's you know it's it's tough for her. Even the last match, the grunt goes away. Even sometimes, yeah. even that you don't even hear that. I mean, it's completely muted. You know, she just takes her. Right out of it, and I think you're right. I mean, you never, I mean, not never. You seldom remember anybody that high up in the game that just looks like utterly powerless against against the against one other person. Yeah, yeah. Pete, you'll be you'll be going to Paris uh, a couple days. We'll have a lot of podcasts actually during that time. You and I um, maybe forget this top top crop of players here on the men's and women's side. Is there anybody in particular you're looking forward to seeing it? Out there, if I was in your spots, I actually would be kind of looking forward to see Janowitz in person for the first time. Uh, watching him um, since last year in Paris, but even when he played Federer, he didn't win. He didn't beat Federer in Rome, but um, there were some serves he was hitting just just mind blowing. And, and, and I think rarely after you watch so much tennis, are you surprised. But this guy is, is kind of a one of a kind player for me at the moment, he, he is someone I would like to see sort of beyond the usual suspects that we're going to follow most often. Anything, maybe some things that you're looking forward to once you've had the Roland Garros there? Yeah, he's like the strong man in the circus. You know, he, he, he swings that big mallet and he, yeah. ding, he hits the bell. Oh my gosh, 500 pounds. Maybe um, some first week things, perhaps. Yeah. You know, I, well, I, I think the four head cases, I mean, I wrote about them a couple of weeks ago and they've all, they're all doing really well. Fognini fell off a little bit these past couple of weeks, but yeah, Fognini, Gulbis, and you know what? I, you know, in, in all seriousness, I wouldn't discount Gulbis because look, the kid is nuts. He doesn't, you know, he, you know, he clearly doesn't have a lot of respect for 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 anybody. Yeah. I mean, the way he talked about how much better he is than Nadal, and that's, I think that gets to Rafa too, and they've played some pretty close matches. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Gulbis, I'm looking at uh, Fanini because he's, he's really, really just fun to watch. He really I mean, is. Fabrice Santoro fans, I think, you know, should flock to his matches, and then Benoit Pair who. Benoit Pair, you know, who who gets to the semifinals. Be your passport revoked if you say that. Exactly, yes. Right. <laughs> but you remember the girl runner, the woman runner from Maine, uh, Katie Benoit or Julie Benoit, and it was always pronounced Benoit here, but it is Benoit. Benoit Pair got to the semis in uh, in, in Rome, and, and, and he's a terrific talent. Somebody once said of him, I said, uh, somebody said that he – He's the only player in history of tennis who uses the drop shot offensively, and yeah. it's and it's really kind of true. He goes to it often and with fearlessly, and and does a lot with it. So he's going to be fun to watch. And I guess the first one is Dimitrov, who if he isn't too, if he isn't OD'd on Sugarpova, then you know he might, well he might do a little damage too. Actually, it's a pretty interesting tournament for he, he. I think he should be seated actually by now for the French. Uh, he ought to be. I think he was up in the low thirties. Yeah, it's um, this would be a nice. Ter- I think nice it's going to be a great first week, is what I'm saying. I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's just that's just four of the guys, but then there are all these other. You know, Almagro is now vulnerable. You know, he, you know, he, he's had a terrible couple of weeks, and he's a pretty high seed. So you know, you can get some of these high seeds knocked off. Uh, Tsanga, Tsanga's playing. You know, playing lousy, or his results are lousy, and 
you know. So I mean, it, there's there's a, really a lot of a lot of a lot of room for drama in that first week. And a guy like Gasquet, I mean, he you know he had a great Miami. He's had some good clay results, but you want to see him push past the fourth round at the French Open finally because he's so gifted. But can he do it? You know, yeah, I think P- I think Peter has a case yeah, of Gasquet fatigue also, in addition to raw fatigue. I I, I just don't see that Gasquet. Bodo posts coming together very easily without some arm twisting there. I have I have Bodo I have Bodo fatigue from Gasquet fatigue. I'm sick of myself having Gasquet fatigue and railing against that one-handed quote beautiful unquote backhand. Ugh, enough of it. Anyway, I'm sick of myself. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice on that one. So no. yeah, you're right though. There'll be kind of a media blackout of yes. Richard Gasquet. Well. There it will be a lot to discuss. I think you make a good point about the first week. Um, we'll get together before the tournament um, throughout this week. Some chats, uh, previews, of course. Uh, many, many things about the front open. And once you arrive there, people will be in touch doing the podcast. So for both of you gentlemen, thank you for coming, contributing, and we'll talk to you all later on Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.